Thanks, Maddie. Well, how are you feeling? Some of us, I reckon it feels like there's a big swear word behind me, doesn't it? It's a little like off-putting. Maybe you, do you feel a little bit dirty? You walk into church and there's a big money. Yeah, I, I suspect some of us are feeling a little strange. Why? Because well, you're not supposed to talk about money. Uh, we were particularly conscious and aware of this uh, when we first started church. You know, just aware that at least sometimes in the public eye, there is an image of churches that they're just all about trying to get your money. Now, frankly, I think that's not true, but the stereotype does exist at least for a reason. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone earlier this week, kind of saying, you know, how are you feeling about the series? And they only jokingly half said, yeah, it's, a, it's actually a little triggering for me. Uh, they maybe left their previous church because of a concern that there was too much conversations about money. So it's a delicate dance for the last eight years or nine years that we've been trying to walk. I don't think anyone would accuse us of avoiding the topic, but of the, let's call it maybe 70 or so sermon series that we've done, not one of them has been on money. And maybe you're thinking, you're on such a good run, why ruin the run now? <laughs> well, look, maybe two reasons. Part of it is circumstantial. Uh, I reckon this year, uh, between interest rate rises, petrol prices, inflation, rental increases, I've probably had more conversations about money with people than in any year gone past. And so it does seem like an area where we actually need God's word to speak into our life more than ever. On the other hand, it, it's probably also just a matter of getting in line with the biblical emphasis. See, Bible talks about a lot of stuff. Uh, there's 500 verses on prayer and faith in the Bible. But over 2,000 verses on money, at least on one count, 2,350. Over 40% of Jesus' parables are about or touch on money and wealth in one way. It makes you wonder, if God seems to talk about money so much, what are we missing out on if we don't at least deal with it front on and directly on occasion? That's what we're going to try and do in this series and do over the next seven weeks. Now, I'm going to probably say this a number of times because I don't think you're going to hear me the first time, but this is not a fundraising series. Uh, we will talk about giving because anytime the Bible talks about money, giving is usually in the mix somewhere, but it's not a fundraising series. Uh, if anything, it's a faith-raising series because over and over again, we are going to see, when we look at what the Bible has to say about money, it will challenge the proclivity and temptation of our heart to put our trust and our security in money rather than God. And so it's going to challenge our faith, and I pray, raise it. In terms of how we're going to do it, Matt flagged, over the coming six weeks ahead of us, we're going to take one passage from the New Testament that talks about money. Some of them are from Jesus, some of them are from Paul. We'll just work our way through the text and see what it says. But today, and in part just to lay some foundations for us, I want to help us take a look at what the book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, has to say about wealth. And so if you're looking for a title for today's talk, it's called Wealth and the Wisdom of Proverbs. Wealth and the Wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, I was reading the book this week, actually. I read the whole book from front to cover, and I kind of highlighted every time that something related to money or wealth or riches popped up. And uh, what I hope to do today is just share what I noticed as I read through the book. So you could do the same thing if you want. Uh, but before we get to that, I think it's helpful just to set us up by giving us two almost foundational principles to make sure we get our interpretation right. 
First thing when it comes to understanding Proverbs is just to recognize that Proverbs gives us general observations, not spiritual laws. It gives us general observations, not spiritual laws. And so, for example, uh, when you read something like Proverbs 22 verse 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. It's not telling you, it's not promising that if you are humble and fear the Lord, then you will necessarily get riches and honor and life. That's just not the way that Proverbs works. The Proverbs spring from wisdom. And wisdom, biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom takes as its assumption, as its presupposition that we live in an ordered world that God has created. And then it looks at the world and notices patterns. It observes things. You know, when this happens, this is often the result. It's not a rule, but it's often the flow-on effect, the consequence. So that would be one of the patterns. Those who are humble and fear the Lord often do okay for themselves. There are exceptions, though. And so you can't turn it into a spiritual law where A always causes B. It's a general observation, but the wise person in the eyes of Proverbs is the one who takes heed of the Proverbs and then seeks to live wisely in accordance with the general patterns in God's world. Second of all, second just kind of thing to flag up front for us is that most of us, not all, but most of us will be rich in the eyes of Proverbs. Uh, Sarah Meganson is a finance journalist. Uh, and in an article I read this week from news.com.au, she said this, the amount of money you need to earn in order to pay your bills and live comfortably is really different to the amount you need to feel rich. Notice what she's saying. There's kind of two different categories. There's having enough money to pay your bills and live comfortably, and then there's those who are rich. Now, maybe you're saying, well, how much do you need to earn to feel rich? Well, actually, 50,000 Australians were surveyed, asked that exact question earlier this year. The average Australian income is $94,000, and yet more than 50% of us think you have to be earning over $250,000 to be rich. Uh, what's particularly telling about this is the way that the figure increased the older you were. So the young people thought it was 250 grand, whereas those in their 40s thought it was 315 grand. It's interesting how the goalposts just keeps moving, isn't it? But either way, that's what the average Australian thinks. If that is the paradigm through which you understand what it means to be rich and wealthy, the wisdom of Proverbs will be absolutely lost on you. Why? Well, look again at the passage that Matt read out for us earlier. Uh, this is a prayer of a man named Agur. It's the only prayer in the whole book of Proverbs. And this is what he says. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. At least in the mind of Agur, there's poverty over here, there's riches over here, and the midway point is having your daily bread. It's having enough to survive on, but not necessarily too much more. It's making ends meet. Anything more than that, and at least in Agar's mind, you've, you've tipped into riches. So again, I, I want to stress that. 
you don't need to earn $250,000 a year to be rich in the eyes of Proverbs. Or to come back to Sarah Meganson's word, if you can pay your bills and live comfortably, then it doesn't matter how you feel, objectively, at least in the eyes of Proverbs, you're rich. I appreciate that may not be all of us, but it's probably a whole lot of us. So with all that, just by way of introduction, uh, let me now take you through three of the major themes that I noticed as I was reading through the book. Theme number one, it's righteousness, not richness, that matters to God. It's righteousness, not richness, that matters to God. Uh, as Christians, uh, we can often fall into reductionist and therefore heretical views when it comes to wealth and money. Uh, the two most typical and common ones are uh, poverty theology and prosperity theology. Uh, the names sort of give it away. The prosperity theology kind of assumes that the really mature Christians are those who've taken a vow of poverty and uh, renounced their wealth, and that anyone with wealth is maybe a second-class Christians or at the very least suspect at best. Uh, what is it? Prosperity theology is basically the opposite. Uh, you tend to assume that uh, the blessing of wealth always goes hand in hand with faith and obedience, and so if you don't have it, you're poor because you lack faith. Now, the problem with both of those heresies is that they each at least seem to have Bible verses that could be argued to back them up. It's actually often the case with heresies. It's why they're convincing. They usually have half-truths embedded within them. That's why they convince people. But Proverbs, I think, helpfully walks a different line. It helps us avoid those pitfalls by painting a picture that's much more nuanced than that. And so Proverbs, at least as I saw it, seems to paint a picture of four different categories. Now, there's the righteous poor, and then there's the righteous rich, number two, and then there's the unrighteous poor and the unrighteous rich. And what's more, the emphasis in Proverbs seems to be less on the priority of being rich over poor and far more on the priority of being righteous over unrighteous. As long as you're righteous, Proverbs doesn't seem to have a strong preference as to whether you're rich or poor. Now, that's not to say that Proverbs is completely neutral when it comes to poverty or riches, because it's not. Uh, on the one hand, the Proverbs are realistic about the hardships of poverty. And so, for example, Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor are shunned even by their neighbours, but the rich have many friends. Uh, Proverbs 18.23 says, The poor plead for mercy, but the rich answer harshly. Now, neither proverb is offering a moral judgment on that. It's simply stating the way things are. It's an observation. Uh, tragically, those who are poor often end up lonely and needing to beg others for help. And so again, Proverbs, it doesn't present anything intrinsically desirable about poverty. Uh, poverty is hard. It's often dehumanizing. And so it's foolish to romanticize it. On the other hand, the Proverbs are also realistic about the challenges that come with riches. 
And so, for example, in the ESV translation of Proverbs 13.8, we read, The ransom of a man's life is in his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. It's beautiful realism to that proverb. On the one hand, it may be true that the rich person has enough to pay the price of the ransom. On the other hand, good chance is that the poor person's not getting kidnapped in the first place. At the end of the day, wealth brings a whole new set of challenges that the poor just never have to deal with. And that includes temptation. And the Proverbs are realistic about this. Uh, Proverbs 11.28 says, Those who trust in their riches will fall. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Most of us know this to be true, don't we? we most of us agree with it. And we say, yes, 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 yes. Definitely shouldn't trust in our riches. That's bad. But Proverbs, it's realistic about the challenge of that for the rich. And so, 18.10 to 11, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Right? Notice the contrast between the righteous... <coughs> and the constant temptation of the rich. The righteous find their security, their safety in the Lord. In other words, when trouble comes, they run to Him. They don't run to their wealth because they don't have any. So they run to the Lord and find security and safety in Him. But the constant temptation of the rich is to find their security in wealth. And what's more, when they get it, so all the more, after all, sorry, the more they get the higher and more impenetrable the rich think that wall is, the more secure they feel. But notice, notice that last little line. No, no, no. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Proverbs says the safety and security of wealth is all in the imagination. Can we just hear that again? The safety and security of wealth, it's all up here. It's, it's, it's just up here. It will not save you. That is true both in this life and even more so in the life to come. Now, Proverbs 11 verse 4 says, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, we just finished a series in the book of Revelation a couple of weeks back, and over and over again, the same point was made. It's clear. Every man, woman, and child will one day stand before God, the creator of the universe, and need to give an account. And on that day, the number of zeros in our bank accounts will make absolutely no difference whatsoever. The only thing that will matter on that day is whether you are righteous through faith in Jesus and have lived a life of obedience in response. Over and over again, the Proverbs repeat this idea. Righteousness is more important than riches. And so they'll even say things like, yes, look, while poverty may be hard, Proverbs 28.6, better the poor whose walk is blameless than the rich whose ways are perverse. Or 16.8, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Grace City, can we just let that sink in again? Proverbs says, 
you would be far better off living in a tiny little apartment that you never own, renting for the rest of your life, catching public transport, never owning a car, living paycheck to paycheck, if you're righteous, than you would be living in a beautiful house with water views that's fully paid off and mortgage-free, two or three investment properties, some beautiful cars in the garage, if you get all of that at the cost of your faith in Christ. And Jesus says, what is a profit, a man, if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Now, again, we always say to that, yeah, I know, that'd be a dumb trade, isn't it? <laughs> but it's never presented like that. It doesn't say, would you like the world or your soul? Choose. No, no, no. We always think that we can have both. You know the parable of the soils? The thorns in that parable, I think it's the thorns, are the pleasures of riches and wealth. They're there at the same time that the seed is sown in the soil. They grow up together. And slowly but surely, the thorns strangle out and kill the seed. This is what Agar understood. It's hard to be rich and righteous. And see, prayers give me neither poverty nor riches. Uh, next week, uh, Charlie's going to take us through you know, the rich young ruler. And Jesus says it's, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I think most of us are trying to pray that we might be skinny camels. You know, let, 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 us be the ex- let us be the exception. I want to be rich and righteous, please. Aga says, I don't want to risk it. I don't want poverty or riches. What do you value most? Is it righteousness or richness? If someone was looking at your life, what would they say? Why? If you notice that things are out of order, what do you have to do to get your priorities straight? Maybe this is a conversation for community groups this week. Next week, uh, sorry, this week we're looking at next week's passage, but maybe as a group over dinner, have this conversation. What at the moment are you valuing more? Is it righteousness or richness and how do you know? See where that goes. Number two. Number one, righteousness, not richness, is what matters to God. Number two, the second observation I made, at least according to Proverbs, is that wisdom often not always, but often leads to wealth. Wisdom often leads to wealth. See, one of, the, one of the challenges of the book of Proverbs is that you have to hold a bunch of things in tension. And so, for example, I said earlier that as long as you're righteous, Proverbs doesn't really have a strong preference as to whether you're rich or poor. And while that is true, it probably spends a little more time warning against the challenges and the temptations of being rich. And so it's realistic about that. At the same time, it's constantly saying, pursue wisdom, go after wisdom, get wisdom at any cost. The reason you've got to hold that intention is because it also seems to keep saying that those who get wisdom and pursue wisdom often get riches thrown in. And so, for example, have a look at Proverbs 3, 13 to 16. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. What's she holding? Long life is in her right hand. 
and a left hand are riches and honor. It's just one example of many in the book. You're kind of constantly told wisdom is more profitable than silver, yields a better return than gold, but there's this ongoing observation, not a rule, but an ongoing observation that those who gain wisdom often get honor and riches thrown in. And so again, for example, this in Proverbs 8, lady wisdom is personified. So this is wisdom talking. And she says, with me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Again, the observation of the Proverbs is that those who are wise often end up wealthy. Suppose we ask, though, well, how exactly do the wise get wealthy? Or to put it differently, what are the wise activities that seem to generate this wealth? Well, uh, outside of the Lord's blessing, which is a major one, but we're going to come to it uh, later, I noticed three things that just kept popping up throughout the whole book. Number one, diligence. Diligence. Uh, The Proverbs are are constantly contrasting the diligent person with the lazy person. For example, Proverbs 10, 4 to 5. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. Diligence in Proverbs is the capacity to break through the inertia of laziness and sleepiness and apathy and actually just apply yourself to the task at hand, the responsibilities before you. Right? Diligent people in Proverbs don't keep coming up with excuses. Oh, I'm tired. I'll do it later. I'll do it tomorrow. They, in you know, the sort of colloquial term, they swallow the frog. They slay the dragon before breakfast. They get stuff done. Uh, diligence is also seen in the willingness to endure hardship and mess in order to get a bit of a better return. So Proverbs 14.4 says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Proverb invites us to imagine two barns. Which one of these do you want? Do you want a clean barn? that's easy to maintain because it's got no oxen that keep messing it up? Or do you want a barn full of oxen and the accompanying mess, to put it politely, that goes along with it? Well, each of those barns have their consequences. The first requires much less investment up front and it's a whole lot easier to maintain the more you go on. But the other one may 10x your harvest because it's by the strength of the ox that you get an abundant crop. Now, it's a proverb. And so what you're supposed to do is kind of take the observation and then apply it to different forms of industry. Frankly, I think there's all sorts of applications. But the the point of the proverb is that the diligent are those who are often willing to make a bit of an investment up front and put up with hardship if it turns out that they might get an abundant result afterwards. That's the first thing I just kind of noticed. The wisdom of diligence often leads to wealth. Second thing I notice is the wisdom of patience. Proverbs uh, is increasingly or incredibly suspicious of those who get rich quick. Uh, It's partially because it assumes that if you've gotten rich quick, you've done it dishonestly. But also it it just notices and constantly observes the way that those who get get rich quick often don't really know how to handle their wealth. And so you see this in Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. 
You often see this with lottery winners. Uh, they get a sudden windfall of wealth, but because they don't know how to steward it properly, it disappears. It's, it's actually a phenomenon. It's called the curse of the lottery. Uh, tragically, there is a disproportionate amount of lottery winners who end up in legal trouble, dead, divorced, or at least bankrupt within five years. Turns out that's not a new phenomenon. Uh, Proverbs has been noticing it for 33,000 years. But what's also noticed by the writer of Proverbs, or by the Proverbs, the sages, is that those who gather their wealth slowly and little by little tend to be the ones who increase it over time. They also highlight the wisdom of being patient enough to develop a plan. So in 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit, as surely as haste leads to poverty. Notice again the suspicion of haste and the emphasis on diligence. Those who are hasty and just rush into things without adequate planning often end up losing money, whether it's an investment or a new venture or a business, while those who are patient enough to make plans and then act on them, right? they're diligent and just talk about it, often, though not always, end up making a profit. Again, second thing, wisdom of patience often leads to wealth. Third, wisdom of generosity. Wisdom of generosity. Uh, time and time again, the Proverbs of the observe that those who are generous often end up more with more sorry, than those who are stingy. And so Proverbs 28, verse 22, the stingy are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Well, take the ESV of Proverbs 11.24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Now, you might look at that and go, how does that even work? That's counterintuitive. Surely, if you're giving freely, you end up poorer, don't you? How does it work? Well, think about farming. Because that's almost certainly the context in which this proverb first arises. I'd imagine two farmers... Both have a bag of seed. Uh, the first farmer looks at his seed and he says, this is precious seed. This is precious seed because with this seed I can bake bread. And so he holds on to the seed and only distributes a teeny little bit around the edges because he holds on to what he can use to make bread. Uh, the other farmer has the same amount of seed, but he says, look, this is precious seed. But the wise thing to do with this seed is actually to only hold on to what I really need to survive, to bake bread and live on. But then the wise thing to do would be to give generously, to sow freely to the earth. Now, when the harvest comes, there's two very different harvests. The one receives a small harvest, the other receives a bountiful harvest. Again, it's just noticing the wisdom of generosity often, though not always, returns abundance. Now, again... Let me stress, it's just an observation. It's not a spiritual law. When you turn that into a spiritual law, you become a heretic. So don't mishear me. But it is interesting to note that even the secular finance literature stresses the importance of generosity. Now, um, barefoot investor. From what I can tell, he's not a believer. If you know different, that's fine. But uh, he encourages parents, you know, set up three jars for your kids. There's the spend jar, the give the, the save jar and the give jar. He thinks giving is important. Well, then there's uh, Robert Kiyosaki. He's like that rich dad, poor dad guy. He's got a board game called Cash Flow. It's like adults' version of Monopoly. 
the board rewards you for giving 10% of your income to, uh, to charity. Why? Well, I suspect partly it's because they've both been influenced by the worldview of the Bible. But I wonder also, have they observed what Proverbs has been telling us for years? There's wisdom in being generous, and it's often returned to you. Now, <clears throat> before I move on to the third observation, it could be that you've heard this last little section and you're feeling a little bit, I don't know, is it offended, frustrated? I want to stress, because uh, maybe, maybe you feel like you're poor, and I want to stress we're talking objectively poor here, not, oh, I don't earn 250 grand a year. Like, you don't have enough to make ends meet. Maybe you hear all of that and you're feeling offended because you feel like you're trying to live wisely. You say, I, I have been diligent. I have been patient. I do seek to be generous when and where I can. I'm still poor. Does that mean Proverbs says I'm foolish? Well, the Proverbs do say that sometimes poverty is a result of folly, but it's not the only result or reason. Instead, Proverbs is very aware that not everyone who pursues wisdom will be wealthy. Uh, often it's because the rich oppress the poor. Actually, no matter how wise the poor are, they're unable to break out of that horrible cycle because the rich are oppressing them and keeping them down. Other times, it's because riches are fleeting. You know, we're constantly told, you know, riches, they'll, they'll get wings and fly away. So maybe the poor used to be rich, but they lost it. And often through no fault of their own. There's a natural disaster, there's floods, there's fires, someone steals it, the market crashes. Sometimes the Proverbs notice that people are poor because a family member, not them, someone else has being wicked or stupid and bankrupt the family and brought ruin on the household. And so again, this is why these are observations, not rules, and we need to stress that first observation. At the end of the day, yeah, okay, even though wisdom often leads to wealth, it is righteousness, not richness, that ultimately matters to God. Third theme that I noticed as I read through were some of the marks of the righteous rich. The marks of the righteous rich. I want to give these to you, not so that you can aspire to be rich, because the Proverbs warn us against that, but because I suspect that most of us already are. In other words, the choice before most of us is not whether to be right, right, uh, sorry, rich or poor. Uh, for most of us, that kind of has already been determined. You're rich now. And so the question is, what kind of rich person are you going to be? Are you going to be an unrighteous rich person? Or are you going to be a righteous rich person? And so with that in mind, let me just note three characteristics or marks of those who are righteous and rich in the book of Proverbs. Number one, the righteous rich recognize the Lord's blessing. The righteous rich recognize the Lord's blessing. Proverbs 28.11 says, The rich are wise in their own eyes. One who is poor and discerning sees how deluded they are. The social scientists speak of something called the self-serving bias. It's where we tend to attribute 
our own successes to internal factors about us, like our own diligence, hard work and ability. And we tend to attribute our failures to external factors. You know, it's the other person's failure or it's something else out there. I think most of that uh, holds true, doesn't it? If you have any degree of success, chances are most of us think that we got there through our own hard work and diligence. We're patient, we're diligent, we're generous. And that's why we are successful. Thing is, if you were born in a shanty town in the majority world, I guarantee you that same diligence, patience and generosity wouldn't give you anything like the results you've got right now. Which is why Proverbs stresses, chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. It's not discounting the work we do. It's making the point that any wealth we have is first and foremost a blessing from God. Grace City, don't forget it. The proverb before said that poor people look at rich people like many of us and think you guys are absolutely deluded if you think you're the reason you're rich. They're working just as hard and have a very different outcome. Grace City, everything you have has been given to you by God. The righteous rich recognize that and give thanks and glory to God for it. Number two. The righteous rich honor the Lord with their wealth. The righteous rich honor the Lord with their wealth. Uh, Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, Honor honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. I'm not going to major on this one today, uh, partly because we're going to come back to it in future weeks. But maybe it is worth just drawing a little bit of a distinction between the, the wisdom of generosity that we touched on before, that even the secular stuff agrees with, with honoring the Lord, which is what's being described here. See, that there are lots of ways that you can honor the Lord with your wealth. Now, one of them is caring for the poor. We're actually going to see that next. But the reference here to the first fruits is a clear reference to the Old Testament practice of giving the first part of your crops to God and supporting those who worked in the temple. Now, the church is not the New Testament equivalent of the temple, at least not in that kind of straight, you know, give to the temple, therefore it's like exactly the same as giving to church. There's one temple, lots of churches, so you can't draw a parallel. But the New Testament makes it clear that one way of honouring the Lord with your wealth is to support the work of ministry and mission, first of all, in your local church, but then also beyond it. So the second mark of those who are righteous and rich is that they honour the Lord with their wealth. Third, and honestly, this was probably the major one that I noticed as I read through, the righteous rich are kind to the poor. The righteous rich are kind to the poor. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honours God. Do you want to honour God? Be kind to the needy, says Proverbs. Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Can you imagine if Jesus walked into our church today? Now, just so we're clear, he's present with us by his spirit right now. Where two or three gathered, there I am with them in my name. But imagine he walks through the front door. 
Uh, he's smelly. He's hungry. But he asks you for some help. I suspect every single one of us, most of us surely, are going to bend over backwards to do whatever we can to help Jesus. It's Jesus for crying out loud. Proverbs says, when you show kindness to the needy, to the poor, you are showing kindness to the Lord. Now, how do you do that? Well, look, it doesn't just look like adopting a sponsor kid, though that's a really good thing to do. It might actually look like fostering a kid. Now, kids in foster care almost always come from poor and broken homes. Maybe it looks like showing compassion to that person you pass on your way to work each morning. Maybe it looks like developing a friendship with a family in social housing just down the street. There's plenty of ways to be kind to the poor, but time and time again, Proverbs goes out of its way to say that those who are kind to the poor or that the righteous rich are kind to the poor. Let me finish up. As I close, I want to come back and just notice the two main themes, like the dominant themes that run through the book. Number one, get wisdom. Number two, be righteous. Get wisdom, be righteous. Get wisdom, be righteous. It's interesting how both of those themes converge in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul in Colossians 2 verse 2 describes Jesus as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, if you know Christ, then you have access to an absolute treasure trove of wisdom. The book of Proverbs is like kindergarten material compared to Jesus. And so if you want to be wise, you want to know how to live properly in God's world, that's wisdom. The New Testament says, get to know Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then you really will be wise. Same thing goes for righteousness. As I read through the book this week, I couldn't help but notice all the areas that I was falling short of what it looks like to be the righteous rich. Don't get me wrong, I'm giving it a red-hot crack. But if it all comes down to me and my effort on Judgment Day, I might be in trouble. And I think you might be too. So I want to leave you today with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is more important than richness. But you can't get it on your own. See, it doesn't matter how diligent, patient, and generous you are. It doesn't matter how much you recognize the Lord's blessing, honor Him with your wealth, and care for the needy. At the end of the day, to be truly righteous in God's eyes, you need to trust in Christ, the one who had no sin, but for people like you and I, took on sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. 
We thank you for the observations that it makes. But would we hear most clearly that wisdom and righteousness converge in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we, may we seek after him. He is the one who yields something better than gold and silver. Instead, faith in him yields a harvest of righteousness. And so, Lord, help us to be, whether we are poor, whether we are rich, help us to pursue Jesus with everything we have and to rest in the righteousness that we have and was won for us through his death and resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen.